This week's show is brought to you by Horizon Books in Capitol Hill, serving Seattle book lovers for 47 years with one of the largest and finest used book collections in the city. Mention UpZones at the register this week for a 10% discount. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is UpZones. You have to elections don't change me. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. Things are changing. Happy Monday, Upzonians. Another week, another great guest. We got Jonathan Hopkins on today. I was pretty excited to get the interview. He's a great dude. I've known him a little bit around Seattle, but uh, never really sat down and talked with him at the length that I did. It, look, it's an interesting story. Grew up in the area, went off to West Point, became a paratrooper, uh, served in, the, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, it, it discharged under the, the don't ask, don't tell nonsense that went on for a while there. It just went off to go kind of fight that and became one of the faces of that resistance, put that nonsense to rest and came back to Pacific Northwest. And he's been a, a community leader ever since. Pretty exciting to, to just kind of get to hear what's going on out in the world. You know, you live your life and uh, you don't realize uh, sometimes just how many people are doing really cool stuff on a daily basis. And that's this guy. Anyway, Jonathan Hopkins. Vancouver, I'm sure you've seen this, like 72, 73% of Vancouverites, the cool of Coover, say they identify more with Cascadia, like maybe not by name, but with the Pacific Northwest in the United States, they identify more with that than they do Eastern Canada, right? Because we're all just sister cities, right, in many ways. Yeah, what's the difference between that and Baltimore, Washington, yeah. Richmond, right? It's, yeah. the same, it's the same idea. And then economically and culturally, by connecting them, like... Vancouver and Seattle kind of like underperform based upon their awesomeness and how close they are. But because of that border and a slow road, it means that we could leverage that both for economic and for social aspects. Like when people want to come visit the Northwest, there's a high-speed rail line. They will visit three cities, right? If they want to put a headquarters someplace, it makes Seattle or Vancouver way sexier if you can have a U.S. or Canadian workforce like just to either way give it a jump yeah away, right it's like it's like if you could if you had a, if detroit was a tech city and the place across mm-hmm. the the bridge was also <laughs> like we're almost that close so you grew up in portland right born there grew up born in tacoma there. and tacoma morton. and where morton washington morton washington are, are we recording right now? yeah we oh yeah we've been recording for 20 minutes my <laughs> friend <laughs> uh don't worry i'll make you look good in the edits don't worry <laughs> uh, i might keep this part in though some of the some of the stuff we were just saying that's actually really it's so cool yeah no i mean well just the concept of a unified i'll love to talk with you after you Yep. We got uh, Brandon, the organizer of Cascadia Underground, is yelling in from the side. But I, I was waiting to see how long it would take for you to become part of the Peanut Gallery. Oh, yeah. Three, four episodes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so what's it like to grow up? You said Martin, Washington. Morton. Morton. What's it like to grow up in Morton, Washington? Sorry, I was age, uh, until I was nine years old, I was in Tacoma, Washington um, in the 1980s, and then Morton from 9 to 18. Um, you know, it's 1,000 people, one square mile up in the mountains. Uh, so it's actually kind of a town. 
Yeah, it's because it's a thousand a people in a mile. Yeah, <laughs> by our city's by our state standards, it's a city. It was a logging town. Mm-hmm. You put your dad was a logger. Yeah, yeah. and so yeah, it's a it's a neat it's a beautiful place to grow up. People are really nice, and I think you know I didn't I grew up in a family didn't have much money, but like you got taken care of in many ways by your community, your teachers, your the people around you, like right. everyone knows everybody, right? Yeah, there's a, like when we talk about a sense of community, a place like that really has a sense of community. So that's what it has going for it. We also see the challenges now of like smaller towns. You know, a lot of the things, whether it's farm towns in the Midwest or logging towns in the Northwest, or, or wherever else they are, like smaller towns outside of metros, like metros are big metropolitan cities or places that are really kind of like booming, and these smaller towns have some aspects of great quality of life, but, you know, sometimes the economic environment's a little bit more challenging and trying to find a, a pathway to make sure they have economic opportunity as well and a great education, I think, is really important. Sure. Yeah. You <clears throat> sort of grew up in this small town, but then you had East for, for yeah, yeah. college. Yeah. I went to West Point, which is in New York, about an hour north of New York City on the Hudson. Um, and that, you know, anybody who goes there, they immediately go in the military after right. school. So I was there in 1987-2001, graduated in June. And so when I was off at officer training right afterwards, like 9-11 happened. Sure. And my first assignment was in Vicenza, Italy, where I was an officer in an airborne unit. And then... What, what does that mean, you know, to be stationed in Italy? And I, and I know, if I'm not mistaken, based on a little bit of cursory research, you did deploy eventually to both Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. So what does it mean to be stationed in Italy? Take me through, like, a soldier's life in... You, you, were, you were army. Yeah. Uh, you were, what, like, a, maybe a captain? As a lieutenant and, and a captain. Lieutenant yeah. and then captain. So you're, you know, you're a lieutenant in the army. It's 2000 and, let's say, two. Um, you're in Italy. What's your daily life like? You know, it's pretty similar to being in the Army at Fort Bragg or Fort Lewis. You know, you get up early in the morning, do PT, we call it physical training, at 6 or 6.30 in the morning for an hour and a half and have breakfast. So you're, you're at work from 6-something till um, 4, 5, 6, 7, maybe 8 p.m. at night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for an officer, it's some office work and sometimes and some stuff outside, whether it's physical training or sometimes you're going to a shooting range or doing some other type of training. So that's kind of like the daily routine, but it had this kind of like magic juice to it of being in Italy. It's just a fascinating. Like we're 45 minutes east of Venice, 45 or west of Venice, 45 minutes east of Verona mm. with, the, with the mountains. Like it's it's not exactly Pacific Northwesty, but the things that you love about the Pacific Northwest are also equally close there. You have the water, but it's warmer. You have mountains. You can go skiing in the winter really easy. But then just like the sense of history. Like in Verona, there was a Colosseum, La Arena, there that was still totally intact. During World War I, the front lines you know, reached as far as the walls of Verona and up into the hills of Asiago. So you just there's like the sense of history. Beautiful old buildings. There's there's restaurants now that Galileo and others would meet at because it was kind of like outside the reach still of the going. church. Yeah, outside the reach of the church and there being heretical about like the earth's movement in relation to the earth. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that, that part was really fascinating, but our, our day-to-day life was pretty, you know, kind of typical, except for you wake up uh, in an Italian speaking land, go, go into little America, do all your training and then go back to your house in some village in Italy. And then the weekends, just amazing. I've been to dozens of countries as a result of that because they're, 
as close as states are here. I, I mean, it sounds to me, and, and this is in stark contrast to probably what came later, but it sounds to me almost like a year abroad or something where you're working hard and you're on your yeah. guard, but at the end of the day, you're having this formative experience, you're expanding, you're growing up a little bit. So fascinating, and yeah, I, I really loved that opportunity, but you know, that said, I had a house in Italy for four years, but when I do the math, it's somewhere between 18 and 22 months that I actually spent on the ground in Italy. So I can speak some Italian, for example, but um, you know, I had a year in Iraq, a year in Afghanistan, a couple weeks in Kosovo, uh, and then training in Germany, uh, where you just go away for a month um, to do training where they, there's larger army units up in Germany, so they have big training areas. So yeah, it's it a fascinating experience. I love that I had it, and you know, I, I love visiting foreign countries, but at the same time, as a Pacific Northwesterner, I come back here and I'm like, Oh, I love this too. Yeah, this and you don't have to go. There's there's not many places that beat it. So this is one of the best places on the planet. Yeah, I, and yeah. I chose it. I, I wasn't born here. <laughs> well, so okay. So now you deploy, right? So now you're so you you were just one year in Iraq and one year in Afghanistan. Is that correct? Right. I mean, the crazy thing is, I got to the unit in May of 2002. I took over a new platoon. Like our, our unit was being built. They doubled the size of the army contingent in Vicenza, which is where I was stationed. And so they were still building out the second unit, another battalion. And a battalion has about 800 people. Mm, okay. So I moved into the last platoon, which is about 40 people. As the platoon leader of the last platoon stood up in the last company. And so when I joined my platoon, pretty sure there's about seven of them. And it was late January 2003. And we were able to train for a while in Germany. And then... but. Like exactly two months later, we jumped into northern Iraq mm -hmm. with a bunch of people that had barely been together for two months. So I had a great platoon sergeant and some good leaders in that platoon that we had a fantastic time, but we landed on the ground in Iraq and we'd still be training at times. Like we were securing an airfield. Wow. We'd pull off the line and do training when there weren't airplanes landing. So we were in Kurdistan, so it was relatively, relatively safe. But then like soon thereafter, we moved into the city of Kirkuk. Got it, which, which is clearly conflicted. quite quite dangerous at, at times. Yeah. So, you know, there's an expression in tech. They say you're building the plane as it takes off. You guys were maybe literally building some planes as they were. We're building off. the platoon as the, the plane took off. Yeah, right. <laughs> on the plane. Fair enough. Um, because we jumped in, right? And so we actually took a plane and then jumped out of it. So. So and you were airborne. So yeah. you were actually going up there and then how. Um, you know, in a given, how many times you're jumping out of an actual plane in a, in a forward. It's like uh, 10 or 12 times. Okay, so you're, it's not like every day you're, you're, you're doing... Or it might have been less than that. I think it's like once a quarter. Like I'm starting to forget things. I think I have like 10 or 12 jumps, which is not that many. Okay. Um, because I was just in that unit for that period of time. And during the deployments, we jumped into Iraq, but then we never jumped during that time. And I'm pretty sure you have to jump at least once a quarter or something. Sure, okay. Um, so it's like four, four or five times a year. So you had more of a routine engagement where you were there to maybe secure... No, um, I mean, there wasn't a lot of fighting for us. The Iraqi army thought that we were way bigger than we were and kept a lot of forces north as the invasion happened from the south. Mm -hmm. And then we moved into the city of Kirkuk, which by that point the Iraqi army had dissipated. I see. It was being looted, so we had to, like, Kirkuk is one of the most fascinating places in Iraq. In a way similar to Mosul, if you ask Iraqis, they would say, yeah, Kirkuk is great because everyone is here. All types of Iraqis, in the mm -hmm. sense, Kurds, Shia Sunni, Turkmanish people who have like a Turkish heritage and so the Turkish government had a had an interesting interest level of interest there plus the Kurdish um, faction and they're Assyrian Christians made about 10% of the population oh that's that's sizable and so it was like really fascinating like there's a castle in the center of the town that 
was from like the 800s mm -hmm. and these really old religions all in close proximity to one another the christians would run the liquor stores and then everybody would shop there secretly uh, right um, makes sense and it was just absolutely a fascinating and eh, a little bit dangerous times place to be like we were securing about one-sixth the city a city of eight hundred thousand people mm -hmm. and we had mm -hmm. 40 folks that were helping to build up the police department and secure one-sixth of the city right. so it does it is more of a frankly occupy and there's a stability and, operation yeah, yeah. right and and then the biggest threats that while i was there that we had to deal with was just the different ethnic groups like the first big conflagration we had was just a a riot where folks that didn't want us there, they weren't hadn't yet organized enough to attack us directly. So they attacked other ethnic groups and tried to create unrest. Mm -hmm. It would hopefully, like for them, hopefully turn on us. Right. And we, like my platoon was the first to come in contact with this march that turned into an all-day ethnic riot. Wow. And this was Sunni Shia, basically? Sunni versus Kurds. Sunni okay. Arab Interesting. versus Kurds. Yeah. And so it was actually instigated by people who were outside the town. Mm-hmm. Right, that came from more conservative Sunni areas, the places that, like for a while, it was called the like the Sunni Triangle. Right. Oh yeah. Um, that existed just south of us, and the northern tip of it was Hawija, and so the folks that instigated this, they came in from, from Hawija. Got it. And yeah. it's a really intriguing like time. Obviously, if we'd done things smarter, we would have had more people, and actually, like the population can't want democracy if they're not secure. Sure. Right. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Don't get shot. Right. It's pretty high on that list. And it's the J curve of stability too, right? right, right? right. As, Correct. As stability breaks down, uh, so does democracy. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So this is all happening in the backdrop in your personal life. I mean, don't ask, don't tell is in 100% effect, right? Yeah. How are you navigating that as a, <laughs> as a forward well, in my deployed? first three years, I was just like, I think when I was at West Point, I was like, oh, this is just a phase. You know, this is going to change. I like girls. <laughs> Didn't change. It <laughs> doesn't usually. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, so it was kind of like denial. Right. Uh, you know, at West Point, and then gradually while I was there, I was just kind of, you know, trying to figure out, mm -hmm. who am I, or will I find just the right girl? Right. And I can see that, I mean, your, your discomfort just tell, retelling the story a little bit, I can, <laughs> it's coming off you a little Well, bit. I haven't thought about it that deeply. Right. For a while. Okay, I gotcha. Like, I mean, Seattle... We're, we're under diverse in some ways, but, you know, for the most part, we're a pretty accepting place of all, like, that, yeah. you know, well, you got I don't it. know. So you kind of forget a little bit sure. how different it was in the level of kind of like constant concern and fear right? that just happens all the time. Like an interesting way, like I and some friends just saw Tom of Finland last night, which mm -hmm. is about somebody from, from Finland <laughs> during like World War II and after, and... I uh, just seeing like the police come after them and stuff like that. It's not exactly the same in the military, but you, you have high expectations of yourself and that others place upon you. And, you know, at some point folks found out that I was gay and like my reaction wasn't, yeah, and you should be fine with it. It was like, oh, I've let you down. Oh, wow. Interesting. Right. Like, and that's oh, in I couldn't, you know, I couldn't not try and meet people or I couldn't whatever else. I, the reaction was just, I've let you down. And like, that's how backwards. And that you? happened largely once you're kind of deployed? That happened at West yeah, Point? Yeah, yeah. Where... Uh, they found out when I was deployed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what is, so institutionally, right? My understanding, uh, and again, total civilian, but my understanding at that time, it, by the book, that was supposed to be a fireable offense. Well, being gay, well, it's really kind of weird. So the, before Don't Ask Hotel was passed in 1993, people could get uh, kicked out of the military for being gay. They could be thrown in the brig. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. it could be given mm -hmm. bad conduct discharges mm -hmm. because it's like an immoral offense. Mm -hmm. um, that said, up until the Reagan years, it was inconsistently enforced. Right, like 
it was really just up to the commander. And so if somebody was caught doing something, if they begged out like, oh, it was just this once, like there's some books that talk about it, like some people approach it like, well, the queen for a day rule <laughs> is what they called it. <laughs> wow, okay. It was like, oh, if it's just, oh, you were drunk and it was just stupid, mess up, uh, whatever, you're a good soldier. And so sometimes that would get applied and other people would be thrown in jail or, or you'd be kicked out. Like there's the full spectrum. It was very inconsistent. Under Caspar Weinberger, who's the Secretary of Defense, and during the Reagan years, they're like, this is an abomination. Sure. And so they, they were much more aggressive and they kind of like aligned everybody. And they around. brought it consistently to, yeah. to one end of the pole. And, and part of the reason it was inconsistent is, you know, not everybody kind of like knew this thing was out there, I guess. Right. That, that it wasn't just part of everybody's consciousness of there being gay people in the military and things like that. Right. So it changed because there's more social awareness of it. And so then there's a clampdown because there's social awareness and everybody's like, oh, this is not everybody. Certain folks are like, oh, this is bad. Not all Republicans. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) broadly. Broadly, no, yeah. But okay, so so now you're fast forward, it's 2004. And so what does this mean for you? Now that it's. Like, I was really, I was a really good officer. (laughs) That sounds cocky, but I don't mean to be. But you followed the rules, you worked hard. I didn't have to balance my time with personal relationships. I had friends who were all in the army and I had army work, right? I wasn't going on dates mm-hmm. for the most part. I wasn't I wasn't having to have like work-life balance for a family. Mm-hmm. My family were my army friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they were all at work. Yeah. <laughs> so I went and worked. Right. And so it just, it's not necessarily a balanced life. Like, yeah, it's and not, so, not healthy in the long run. Like it's untenable. Sure. And But institutionally, it means there's a lot more of a disincentive to make it a painful experience for you. Once it becomes known, sort of superior officers probably had a strong incentive to let it, it depends. be... Like, I, I didn't know who knew. Like, some of my peers had already guessed at some point when I was in Italy. But mm-hmm. I was assigned, I was in Alaska when I had a different army unit. Oh, when all I that see. stuff happened. But, hey. you know, I don't love going into deep, deep detail about it or whatever else. But we don't have to talk about anything yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. want to talk about. You wrap up at the army. So I finished up in 2010. Oh, so you're um, in for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I was in for nine years after West Point. Served in Italy and Alaska get to work closely with a lot of people I respect and love. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was supposed to go off and teach at West Point. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be my next assignment, but end up stuff, you know, life intervened a bit. Mm-hmm. And so I went to grad school in D.C. and then came back to the Northwest. Um, so you are you lived in D.C. for a while, and that would have been like early, maybe early to mid-Obama administration, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 2010 to 2013. And yeah, and so while I was there, like I'd just been kicked out for this but then the bills were starting to percolate up to overturn the law. Right. And so I got to work with others on this issue, right? And play a public role. Like, what's really interesting is we fought this issue there in the public, in the media. I and, you know, there's tons of other people doing this. And at the same time, the Pentagon was assigned to study it. So at some point, I was like one of the most recent, more senior folks to leave the military. Not that I was super senior, I was just a captain. But because I was part of an advocacy group trying to overturn the law, I'm also pretty pragmatic and I cared about the institution. People studying this at the Pentagon reached out to us, Mm -hmm. reached out to me. Mm -hmm. And so I was giving them advice. I still felt like I was somehow serving, like I was doing, I somehow was like doing my duty still. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. the job of an officer is to like solve problems and take care of people and achieve a mission, right? But a huge part of that is just taking care of people, frankly, keeping them alive in the most basic sense. But it goes beyond that and like helping them be a great unit. And so, I mean, there was a problem there, right? Right. People were great. 60, 70,000 LGBT troops had been drummed out of the military at some point in time. Which you can argue puts every other troop at risk, right? Especially if they're good soldiers. Yeah. So it's really kind of funny, but people didn't get it because they didn't care to. 
Like in 1993, you have a bunch of old white men who don't, you know, get it. They told Greta Kammermeyer, like, you know, why didn't you essentially go to a doctor and get fixed somehow, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's a, they treated it like it was a deformity. Mm. And so, if, you know, there's some stuff that's backwards, but like John McCain, who on trans issues actually came out kind of like on the right side of things more recently, he was virulently anti-equality on the LGBT front right. at the time in 2010. I mean, say this is going to undermine cohesion. Of course, right. that was the big argument. Well, when you really think about it, what is cohesion? Really cohesive organizations, people trust one another mm -hmm. because they tell each other the truth mm -hmm. and they deal with some of, oftentimes they deal with hard things, whether it's part of their work-related mission or responsibility or like when you're in the military, you experience everything together. People have a hard time in their relationship. You're experiencing that with your unit and people help it through it. You get hurt or injured, people are there for you. Yep. You help each other through yep. it. Everything is done together. And so one of my classmates from West Point told me how he kind of got it at some point about like how actually these laws undermine cohesion because he had somebody in his unit that everybody knew was gay. The guy hadn't told anybody. No, but everybody sometimes you just out. know. They yeah. figured it out. Yeah. And he had a fairly senior role and he'd go home on two weeks from Iraq or Afghanistan, go home on two weeks and went to like the Bahamas or something. When you go on your two weeks of leave, you come back to the unit rejuvenated, super energized and just rattling on to everybody about how good it was the amazing time you had who you saw yeah but this guy he's gay obviously was there with his partner he comes back and doesn't even talk about it mm -hmm. there's no shared experience mm -hmm. you deprive people of the opportunity mm -hmm. to really be invested in one another at the most at the deepest level yep. and these are folks like when you think about the military it's kind of really just fascinating like what cohesion is like there's a level of love there like if you're willing to do something that's gonna get yourself killed Mm -hmm. to save somebody else mm -hmm. that's a type of love yeah. i don't know there's probably like seven different types of love i don't know which one it is but it's, a, it's one of well that's agape right i mean that's yeah. the, the almost the most christian form of love is that yeah. willingness to step up and sacrifice for someone else and so you know when you trust one another and go through the deepest of things or you know i i had friends ultimately like while i was getting discharged like it was not a fast process for me not an emotionally like the deepest saddest part of my life for me had to that point or since then was right during that period. You know, I had friends that they thought don't ask to hotel was the right rule. Mm -hmm. Well, it was but, intended right at one point to yeah. be a step forward. It didn't seem it to was. work out that and, way. And so they might still, like they thought being gay was wrong still, but they loved me mm -hmm. and they're there for me. It's funny how that works. It's right? really complex. And so going back to what you just mentioned though, the intent of the law, President Clinton was told by Colin Powell and others, it's fine. People can go to gay bars. They can go to gay pride marches. They can do whatever they want. We're just not going to talk about it. And they should just be quiet and it'll be fine. And from like a 20 or 30,000 foot level, that seems fine. Just don't talk about it. But straight people, like if you're in the majority, you forget all the benefits that accrue to you. Mm -hmm. So the majority is heterosexual folks who just think back to that time in the 90s. Like, yeah, some people are gay. I don't want to hear about what those people do. Or they'll right. make crazy bedroom references because that's right. somehow straight where their mind goes. Right. But people talk about their straightness all the time. Day. Oh, it's worn, on, right. it's worn on our sleeves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so to assume, like, they don't realize what a, you know, they're censoring people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, and, and they think being censored in that way and having to hide is easy. So they, they sold it to Clinton as like, oh, they can do whatever they want. We just want to talk about it. Right. How it was enforced was a little bit different. Mm. It's, they made a car, instead of the, you can go to gay bars and you can be in pride marches being emblematic of the level of freedom. Instead, what they were were very specific carve-outs of freedom. Like, yeah, you can go to gay bars, but if somebody sees you kissing... Uh, you have to prove that you're straight. Like that's how, like when I was getting discharged. <laughs> Which gets into all kinds of like, yeah. you know, postmodern uh, existential yeah. uh, arguments. I'd have, to but... I'd have to bring somebody that 
I dated or whatever. I was like, let's say I'm straight. Like, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm just French. Yeah, I was right. kissing them. Right, <laughs> Goodbye. right. Goodbye. <laughs> you know? Bonsoir. Yeah, right. Yeah, or it was a carve out. You could go to pride marches, but if you did anything that implied that you're gay within the pride march, you know, so really people had to protect. In an organization that's founded upon, like, that a core principle is just honor and integrity. Right. You had to be disingenuous. disingenuous. Yeah. And it, it, it was a pretty tormenting, like, when you care, it's, it's one day, like, if you ask somebody to be quiet about their sexuality for three days, okay. Mm-hmm. But try three years. Right. Or nine. Or nine. Yeah. Right. It confines their life in a way that's not healthy for them and it's not good for unification. So that's what we found. Like, everybody, like, there's some people who just didn't get it. Like, when they're doing training, some of there'd be NCOs saying, when they start allowing, them, when the gay people come <laughs> into our unit, right. they, and, and there'd be gays in the audience being like, we're here. Yeah, yeah we're here. We've been here a long time. Yeah. yeah. It's just kind of, it's, it's, so, it's so fascinating. So that's great, man. Fast forward now, right? Your, your advocacy over the last, let's, I don't know, four years, let's say. A little different, but you said something just now, cohesion. Yeah. And I think about that, as soon as you said it, a light bulb went Mm -hmm. off for me about your work with Seattle Subway and now Commute Seattle. I've personally, I find, you know, this is a new podcast, newer. One of the core uh, organizing principles that I have is that urbanism and density, and not for their own sake, but because they bring us into contact with each other and they Mm -hmm. make communion, uh, take that as you will, much easier Mm -hmm. uh, to receive. And so I'm curious, how does that concept of cohesion, right, play into what you've been doing now, whether it's with uh, the subway work or commit yeah. Seattle. I think the cohesion as you're talking about is kind of one of the results and one of the key and valuable results to the thing that's maybe more slightly more defining that really just fascinates me is like I was an infantry officer in the army. Like I never when I joined I didn't think I was going to be an infantry officer. I knew I was going to like serve others. Like 18-year-old me identified with the opportunity like one it was a way to pay for a great education like an Ivy League quality education but to be challenged beyond that. But I just like I wanted to serve something bigger than myself. Like that's heard by a lot of people in the military, I guess. But you know, I ultimately became an infantry officer. What are infantry soldiers? Just a bunch of people with guns. <laughs> 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 I don't own a gun. I will never own a gun. I don't care about guns. Right. The part that drove me was taking care of one another. Sure. Right. Serving others, taking care of people because it just seems like the right thing to do. And so that was the motivating factor for me, serving serving others, being challenged and growing myself. And, you know, so when we bring it to urbanism and the things I care about, for some reason, I have a fascination with transportation and Mm -hmm. infrastructure, I guess. The reason I can be, like, deeply excited about it is what it does, like, how those intersect with taking care of one another and Mm -hmm. the other aspects of urbanism, like, what makes cities how they can be great places to be because it serves it's a healthier place for our globe and for humans to be for the most part. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, and it doesn't need to be partisan, right? But there is a lot of evidence that folks who are out separated, they make civic decisions, they make personal, even economic decisions that are not entirely informed by the full picture. Yeah. And that's not to say that coastal hippie elites are, are you know, uh, so smart. And so it's, that's not at all my point. It's just to say that we, when you have that exposure and, I'll use the word again, when you have that cohesion just with people around you. Yeah. It's a really interesting dynamic. That's one of the values of, like, I grew up in a town of a thousand people, mm-hmm. and now I live in a, a metro of three and a half million. Mm-hmm. There's a study, and I forget I could, who was behind it, that studied legislatures in this from, like, the, and this will get back to cohesion and yeah. understanding those around us, that studied legis- state legislatures nationwide from 
the post-Civil War mm-hmm. until like the 90s or something. And you know, for the longest time, Democrats were the rural party, Republicans were the right. urban slash urbane <laughs> party, and then, then it kind of flipped, right? Transcendent across all of that is that rural interests consistently, all decades, get about twice as many of their interests through state legislatures mm. than urban interests do. And this is the part that starts to connect. Why is that? If you're a rural legislator, one, you're not competing with other rural legislators to be the mayor of a big city because you're geographically spread apart, mm-hmm. right? So you're not competing with one wow, another, so you okay. can be united better. Yep. And then the number of issues you're taking up usually is not plent- as plentiful, the ones that are really big to you, right? Because you don't come in contact with the problems every day. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to solve water rights, and, you know, I want liberal gun laws. <laughs> right. Right? It's, it's usually not as many things, but if you're representing downtown Seattle. What do you have to care about? I mean, everything in the... Maybe a little bit less about water rights. You probably are thinking about guns. You're thinking about social services, transportation, economic development, climate, water levels in the oceans, uh, all the different services. And and when you run, you're not any freer from what I would call like lifestyle ideology is just mm-hmm. on the other side, right? You've got yep. to prove your bona fide. You know, b- back maybe in the rural district, there might be a, a church mm-hmm. and state issue, but here there's kind of a social justice yeah. counterpart to that. So you, you've got to play that game too. And it's why people end up in cities being more liberal. It's part of it is maybe by choice and people self-select to be there. But like once you live in a city, you realize like when you're a rural area, it's a little bit more of a self-reliant place. Mm-hmm. Like you have some of the same problems. You have poverty, you have poverty, you have probably higher drug use mm-hmm. and you have you know education matters whatever but it just you rely on your next door neighbor and your family mm-hmm. and it's a, so it's a little bit more self-reliant and you think you know, your family or in your neighborhood you might just have one issue somebody who has a mental health issue down the street or somebody else who's lost their job here you see that every problem that somebody in the community has affects you right mm-hmm. like our lack of mental health beds in our state affects you every time you walk down part of Third Avenue or or opiate addiction affects you every time you're, you know, walking through anywhere in a city because most people are doing fine, but you come in contact with all of the three, four, five percent that, right. that aren't yep. because they're all there. They're not hidden. They're not hidden in their in their their one uh, cabin in the county out in the ca- country. Mm-hmm. They're all there, and so you have to. Even if you don't have an opiate addiction, you have to worry about the opiate addiction. Right. And even if you don't, you know, things like even if you don't smoke, you have to worry about the other people that are smoke and like all those different things. And so you have to solve it all together. And it causes the communion. Well, it's a result of the communion. It, it causes us to be just much more focused on all those things. Right. That's a really thought provoking, Jonathan. It, I'm hearing you talk and I'm thinking, you know, you just said the smoking. Let's just take that for an example. That was an urban issue. There was an urban rural divide. I remember I was in, I believe, college. It was about 03 when mm-hmm. it was happening. When, when really, like, it started to take off, you know, and mm-hmm. this city banned it and this city banned it. And it was, it was an urban issue. But I, now that you think about it, right, there's the one bar yeah. where everybody goes and it's probably called Smokies. <laughs> and if you don't want to, you know, it, it, you know, that's where all the smoke, whereas in the city, it's just, you know, anybody can walk in at any time yeah. and light up. And so we almost do have, a, in a certain sense, in some ways, a more restrictive uh, because there are more rules associated yeah. with, you know, if you live in the suburbs, you can have a rock yeah. band. What, what, what in a city, what everybody else does affects you. In the yeah. country, whatever, what somebody else does just screws over them if they make the wrong decision. Right. For the most part. For the most part, yeah. right? Or, or at least you can play it that way in your head. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's more libertarian. And you can see how that just impacts everything, including, and this is where I was hoping to, to come today, uh, transit. 
Yeah. Because when you're out in that country, it's not like you're going to use the train every day. Mm -hmm. So there is a disincentive to, you know, whether it's voting, frankly, yeah. voting. You know, our, you know, I'd love for you to talk to the listeners about this because you'll do a better job than me. But I know our state is a so-called Dillon state. So we can't really tax ourselves in Seattle. The state's got to kind of step in and do it for us. So then we've got to... Has to give us the right th to vote for ourselves to <laughs> right. raise in taxes to fix something for ourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, if you... <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts are about that, but just with respect to that rural voter, we need to train. It, it really creates a, a bind a little bit. Yeah, I had a friend tell me, just imagine for a second somebody ran an initiative or there's a referendum put in put before the people by the legislature that stated, quote, the state of Washington shall levy a tax against the people of Seattle and only the people of Seattle to deliver services such as transportation and whatnot to the entire rest of the state, not to benefit the people of Seattle, like not to be delivered within the city limits of Seattle. Do you support this measure? And, you know, the uh, hypothetical there was that, yeah, Seattle would vote for it because they know they're part of a network and what happens in the rest of the state affects them. Because again, what we just talked about. Right. And that they, they need to support the rest of the state because Garfield County and it's 7,500 people doesn't have a lot of money to contribute to roads. Right. Right. And then, but then people from the rest of the state, they would vote no. Why? Because they stop reading at the word tax, right? right? The, in urban areas, you tend to have just like we're all in it together a little bit more, even though at the national level, like just thinking about like patriotism and stuff, people like we're all in it together. But how far do you take that? Right. H how do you help people see that the decisions that support our biggest metro areas actually support the state? So it's been a few years, but Goldie over it, a stranger had a, a graph or not a graph, of infographic that showed tax return on tax contribution. Mm -hmm. And there's a few counties that for every dollar they contribute in taxes, they got $2 back. You know, a lot of them around $1.25, $1.30. And... Seattle, King County, 64 cents. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So nearly 40 cents on the dollar is going to the rest of the state. And guess what? That's a good thing. The states need that powerhouse to pay for those long ribbons of road with 100 people on it out in rural areas mm -hmm. and to pay for firefighting and for forest fires and all, all those different things. So, well, so that, right. And here we are. And, but how do you connect people and help them know that? Because if you're in a rural That's area, what I wanna... you think, you think that your taxes are not supporting the person down the street that has an opiate addiction on your county road. You think it's going to support, you get mad, mad because you think it's all going to Seattle to pay for things in Seattle. Mm -hmm. There's stupid and train and there's stupid needle exchange. Just, yeah. And, right. and you, you somehow assume like that worse than there's, you know, sometimes, uh, some additional, connotations placed on that and 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 people don't realize that no they're so where, paying where do we start the they get. how do we start i mean you and i'll probably be long dead before that's ever changed about human yeah. nature but what's the what moves the needle one percent or five percent to get yeah a better quality of life by getting that buy-in that we can yeah. densify and we can get the infrastructure i mean part of it's education mm. right and helping people see how it helps and not not thinking of urban versus rural as teams. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in my hometown last year for a hometown festival. I was in our hometown for a hometown festival and there was a float going down the street that had like a Confederate flag on it. And that float won first prize. It was the same day as the Charlottesville attacks Whoa. going on. And the person who gave it first prize was the mayor, who's the former police chief. And I respect the gentleman, right? I think he did a good job. He cares about the city and he's done a, a lot of good things for it, but that sure wasn't the right decision. Yeah. And when you read the Facebook comments, when people, like this came a thing, an or, article in the Oregonian, you know, I saw the float and I was kind of a, appalled, but I was hyper appalled when it was like celebrated by mm -hmm. some. 
mm-hmm. and and one and one right but then some of the defenses are well we have a lot of people from the south in our town mm-hmm. <laughs> one no you don't right? <laughs> right yeah sure many generations ago there's some but no you don't people are didn't hand down the confederate flag that's not what to, that flag means right, here right, if anywhere right yeah. but what is really going on i actually think it's people picking teams mm-hmm. it's really like a jersey mm-hmm. and so they're not identifying it's mostly but it also has the other con- the racist connotations for some others kind of ignore the racist connotations or think they're above it right but don't like to be told they, right right maybe they're not bigoted in their heart and don't like to be yeah, told yeah. that they're associated but more so it's a jersey mm-hmm. patriots versus eagles yep. like they're right they're picking a jersey that is the non-urban jersey right because when you're in a small town that's economically struggling how do you have pride in that right right you want to be some, part of something bigger just like everybody does right. and every television show shows that yeah the characters are in the city and every you know yeah, news yeah. media and rural interests are aligned against it and guess what a lot of rural interests have a lot of confederate flags right. and they they say don't you know don't it's kind of like a don't tread on me don't right. tell me what to do right because we have different values and you know most of the values are the same honestly if you just had a really good dialogue about it it's of course a, a few ones that are a few a that are different diverging. so commute seattle yeah right what is the next year look like for you guys what do you guys have coming up and especially in the context of that you know that conundrum which is that we do rely tactically on the rest of the state for money right but strategically we we have this greater interdependence that you're talking about i think one of the most important things is to very visibly and kind of like viscerally connect the two let's take something totally separate from our state and then i'll bring it back to something that i care about right here one of the great national debates has been about like coal jobs, mm-hmm. right? And coal, the coal industry employs the same number of people as Arby's, right? And there hasn't been a big fight, you know, nationally about Arby's workers, trying to make sure that we don't lose any Arby's workers. Not that like, there should be debate about like helping people keep jobs or helping them get jobs of the future, right? Right. So not to diminish like the concern for coal work, co-workers, like we should care about that a lot. But how do you let people that are you know, under threat from change, be rewarded by things of the future. A huge piece of this is like job retraining and whatever else, but why don't we, like if there's green industries that are growing while coal is shrinking, why don't we invest in making sure those end up in coal country? So people have a shared interest in the transition so that they don't have to pick a team of, well, I'm pro coal and no, you're pro energy. Right. What do we need to do right. to get those jobs? And, to and would you like a cooler energy job? Yeah. Right. And so our country hasn't done a lot. Like there's the what is it, the Tennessee Valley Authority or wherever else. Like hasn't done geographic economic like large scale economic development at a broad geographic range since the Great Depression. Well, you know, that's funny. My my role in the Obama administration was at Economic Development Administration, yeah. and we were hamstrung. I mean, the, whenever the government was shut down, yeah. they cut from us. And yeah. the first thing to go in negotiations, and in a sense, that's a Democratic uh, failure as well as a Republican one, mm-hmm. because they were giving us up. The first time, the first thing to go in any negotiation was EDA funds. And what did we do? We did regional development. We did Porter's cluster theory, right? We were doing the work on paper at a desk, but we didn't, we weren't fighting our administration, yeah. frankly, and you know, I love that guy, but uh, our administration and our uh, reps and, and our senators were not mm-hmm. fighting to execute the work yeah. that we were proposing. So I, I'm with you 100%. Yeah. How it's, do you bring that back to Bring Washington? it back here, like, 
you know, it's a really distant argument when you're sitting in Morton and you see that there's a $54 billion light rail system going into <laughs> Seattle. Yeah. Like, how does that benefit me? For all intents and purposes, you don't know that does. Like, you don't physically see it. Although, a better economy in Seattle, which you can't measure from that distance, <laughs> you know, sitting in Morton, you can't look out, oh, their economy's way better now because they have light rail and therefore there's more money coming to my county to pay for opiate addiction, like substance abuse treatment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't see that there's no causation that you can track. Mm-hmm. It's just too distant. But one of the things I would like to see, like there's a study that the governor pushed for, this is transit related, high speed rail, mm-hmm. right? Yep. To go between Vancouver, Seattle, Portland with some stops in between. Well, you know, guess what? That actually does present an opportunity. A couple different things. Uh, Pierce County and Snohomish County have the fastest change in population growth of almost any county in the country, according to the FYI guy at the Times, largely because of affordability in Seattle. And some of those people have 90-minute commutes. There's people that work in hotels here commuting up from Olympia at rush hour. Two hours. Right, two hours. I believe there isn't anybody that deserves a two-hour commute. Yeah. And so how can we solve that? Well, high-speed rail, if it goes to Portland an hour and a half, that's a 15-minute trip from Tacoma. Mm -hmm. Moving to Tacoma doesn't mean you should have to have an hour and a half trip. We should do better. And now it's not us versus them. It's it's us together. It's us for us. But then it's not just Tacoma, Everett, and Olympia and Seattle, right? Um, Vancouver and Portland have like the same issues. But also, like, what if you do have stops? They might not get every hourly train going between Seattle and Portland. What if you do have stops in Centralia and Kelso? You know, the, the counties on the west side that have struggled a little bit more. Some of the ones that have struggled most, like Grace Harbor County, might be even worse off. Like there's some economic malaise articles about Grace Harbor County and their struggle of just even having health care for the county, but um, health health insurance for the county. But to me, those counties that are red counties, right, if you're looking politically, that's opportunity. They haven't been growing jobs at a, to a great degree, but you can live in those places. Some people would like to live someplace where the cost of living is lower. And then come More on people want to yep. go there. And also, what if doing some work that doesn't have to be in Seattle could be done in the Centralias and the Kelsos and Longviews? Right. But they're really, really close because that train, like you can get to those places if you're near a station almost as fast as you can get across town. Right. That, Makes perfect sense. Right. Then you can let the bount- economic bounty that's overflowing in places like Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver, you can help them reap part of it. And that's that's taking care of our state. And then doing the same thing on the east side. We have 39 million visitors come to King County. And if you have a train going through Wayne country, country mm-hmm. don't some of the... There's going to be a clear benefit. Visitors? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And so, you know, we end every show with a segment we call, If You Care About, You Should... Fill in the blanks. If you care about economic development for our state and help us be globally competitive, you should support high-speed rail. Jonathan Hopkins, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, always a pleasure. Boom! That was Jonathan Hopkins, Executive Director of Commute Seattle. Check out CommuteSeattle.com right now. This has been UpZone. This week's sponsor was Horizon Books in Capitol Hill. Mention UpZones at the register for a 10% discount. All music by the Subcon. Opening poem segment courtesy of Anthony McPherson. Thanks to Abigail, Dave, Kamira, and Rod for reminding us that things are changing. Thanks to our producers Brandon and Naboo. I'm your host, Ian Martinez. This has been a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week. My favorite.